The market is, a, is an irrational beast. It doesn't seem, seem to look at the economics of the world. And, you know, when you look, like you said, the high unemployment and the poor retail sales that we saw and the high foreclosures continuing and the home prices not stabilizing, I mean, how much more negative news do we want? Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Monday, August 17th. And that was Joe Saluzzi, co-founder of Themis Trading, you heard at the top, talking about the unusual fact that stocks sometimes go up even during a recession. So Hannah, on today's podcast, we are going to continue to talk about something that has made all our lives much better, but also almost plunged us into the next Great Depression. And we'll just leave that there for now. The indicator <laughs> is 12.1. Uh, right. The suspense is probably killing them. The indicator is 12.1. <laughs> and that is the latest reading from the New York Fed's manufacturing survey. The New York Fed surveys all these factories and manufacturers in New York State. They come up with a number representing the health of manufacturing. And that number is 12.1. Right. And 12.1 is big news because it's the first time the survey number has been positive at all in more than a year. So positive number, that generally means manufacturing is expanding. Negative number means shrinking. So good news. Yeah, but a lot of the expansion is attributed to the stimulus taking effect. So, you know, we have all these tentative good signs. Now we're going to see if they'll sustain. We'll see if the expansion will continue. Right. Okay, so on with today's podcast. What is that thing that has made all our lives better, but also almost plunged us into the next Great Depression? Of course, I refer to financial innovation. Uh-huh. And financial innovation is this thing. You hear a lot about it if you've been talking with regulatory reform, can I say geeks, like I've been doing over and over and over again, people who care a lot about like how to fix our financial system. Um, and it comes up in the following way. We have to be careful about how we go about regulatory reform because we don't want to quash financial innovation. That's what a lot of people always say. But then you're thinking, but financial innovation, isn't that what caused the problem in the first place? So... That's what we're going to be talking about today. Right. So and when we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, you and Adam, Alex, on the podcast, um, and it was really interesting because the, the main idea that I got from that podcast was, you know, you look at this entire history of financial innovation, you know, including the invention of stocks and bonds and the development of mutual funds and 401ks and all these things that are a big part of our, you know, our lives now, the invention of currency. And it's hard to argue that you know, it hasn't been overwhelmingly beneficial to our way of life. Financial innovation, you know, over the centuries has made it easier and easier for people with just with a good idea to get money that they need to develop that idea. So without financial innovation, there wouldn't be railroads or AIDS medication or Google. But and this is where the debate gets interesting. If you look at recent history, the recent history of financial innovation, say over the last 25 years, that's when questions start to arise. Um, and the main question is, over the last quarter century, has financial innovation been net positive or net negative? In other words, has it helped us or hurt us? And there are a couple of people who've been having this very debate online on the internet. And it's been a very spirited debate, and it's raising all these really interesting issues. So I was having such a good time reading it, I thought, let's bring these people into the studio and have them talk about it. So that's what we did. Okay. And just to set it up, because there's a lot of voices here, we're going to have Alex sitting with three different men. On the one side, we have the blogger Felix Salmon. He's a longtime financial reporter. He writes a blog for Reuters.com. And here is his take. It stopped getting better and it started getting worse. And financial innovation basically became a way for bankers to 
um, arbitrage their way around regulation and make lots of money for themselves at the expense of everybody else. And efficiency didn't really improve, as is evidenced by the enormous profits that the financial men- sector made. If you if they were getting more efficient, you would expect them to be making less money. In fact, they made more. Okay. On the other side, we have Tyler Cowen, who is an economist at George Mason University, and he writes the blog Marginal Revolution. He comes in solidly for financial innovation. Here's what he says. In my view, the big problem lately has been leverage. And if we had been less levered, financial innovations would not have seemed so harmful. There's a common pattern in the history of financial innovation. A new product comes along, like, say, junk bonds. There are real problems with it at first. Uh, There's a longer-term market adjustment. And I think that's a lot of what we've seen. But we combined some innovations with too much leverage, and we got in a lot of trouble. But we should not overreact by cutting off the flow of innovation. Okay, and finally, we have a moderator of sorts. So we have Felix Salmon. He's, you know, pretty anti-financial innovation. Then you heard Tyler Cowen. He's pretty pro-financial innovation. So this last person, he's the sort of moderator. His name is Mike Konzel. He blogs for Atlantic.com as well as his own blog, RortyBomb.com. We'll, we'll link to all these guys' blogs on our website, npr.org slash money. So Mike himself, he's a former financial engineer. So Alex, you launched right in with a question for him. Mike, you're the one here who's actually done um, financial innovation as your job. Have you Mm -hmm. ever, did you ever innovate something (laughs) that um, you felt like should be illegal? Uh, this, this is totally off the record, right? Uh, <laughs> or anything. <laughs> no, I'm afraid it can't be off the record. So that's, is that a question I'm, you can't answer? I am going to. I'm going to dodge that question. Okay. Um, Do you know lot, of anybody? I, I will. I will. I will no, no. I will tell you that a lot of work goes into keeping up with everyone else's innovation. So. Um, a big thing that's in the news right now is high-frequency trading, and I don't do that, and I'm not in that world. But I do know that there are a lot of people who are otherwise um, have to dedicate resources to keep up with what someone else has done. So that's, that is normal for innovation, right? It increases competitiveness. Um, if someone comes up with something that's innovative, everyone else has to try to catch up to them. That's the way we want markets to work. However, if someone's coming up with something that is genuinely dangerous – you still have to keep up with them, even if you think that this is obviously a disaster waiting to happen, because you can't be the person who's behind the list on that. All right. So now you've met the three men involved in this conversation with Alex. And OK, so so let's go back to that thing that Tyler was talking about, leverage. So leverage, remember, that's the amount a financial firm is allowed to borrow. So just like when you buy a house with very little money down, financial firms, they were borrowing this huge amounts of money with tiny, tiny sums that they would put down. And when the investments went down in value, they got stuck underwater, just like a lot of homeowners have been stuck underwater. They owe more than they own. Right. And so Tyler Cowen was saying that was the main problem, leverage. Banks needed to keep more money on hand. In other words, lower their leverage. And he said that blaming innovation for the crisis was basically picking the wrong guy from the lineup. The problem wasn't innovation, it was leverage. But Felix Salmon, the the British guy, he says innovation was the thing that allowed the leverage because most of the innovation in the last 25 years, it was just simply clever ways of hiding the fact that banks were taking on more and more leverage and taking on more and more risk. Okay, so here's Felix. Let me use this as a a 
good example, I think. The very first, what's known as synthetic CDO. You remember the collateralized debt obligations, which which caused so much problem. Um, one of one of the more interesting innovations, which I have to admit I thought was a great idea when it actually happened, was this thing called the synthetic CDO, which was invented by J.P. Morgan, and they came up with this this thing called Bistro. And what J.P. Morgan did was they had ten billion dollars of loans on their books, and they sold the credit risk associated with those loans to investors who wanted the credit risk. In other words, sold. the risk that the, that the companies from these loans would go bad. Exactly. Right. Credit risk is default risk. It's the, mm-hmm. it's the risk that, that the, um, yeah, the, the borrowers won't pay the money back. And, and they sold it using this, this instrument called Bistro, and it was a roaring success, and it wound up being the first of hundreds of billions of dollars of these creatures, these synthetic CDOs. But if you go back to the first one, which is a perfectly good example, it turned out not to perform very well. But more to the point, the total amount of the face value of of the Bistro CDO that they sold was $700 million. It was less than 10% of the $10 billion of credit risk that which they were nominally hedging. What they, they took, ten, they had $10 billion of risk on their balance sheet, and by selling a maximum of seven hundred billion, the, the external investors would basically pony up a maximum of seven hundred million um, in the event that everything went horribly pear shaped. But somehow uh, they managed to get past all of the ratings agencies and the regulators and everyone else that they were fully hedged at that point, and that's a form of leverage. Wait for basically for seven hundred million dollars, you get to you get to protect yourself against ten billion dollars of potential downside. Right, and so that's what you're talking about when you're talking about excessive leverage. But they, but they designed the instrument. And, and, and the synthetic CDO was, was the poster child for wonderful financial innovation, and J.P. Morgan would trot around the world talking about how clever they were and how innovative they were. And people like me, financial journalists at Euro Money Magazine, would go, ooh, you're terribly clever and innovative, and, and aren't you wonderful, and give them awards. And, and none of us actually stopped to ask, like, how did you manage to shrink $10 billion of risk into a $700 million instrument? If you look at what happened, I think that the financial sector put a huge amount of its R&D resources, if you will, in terms of what what the products were that they were innovating, into precisely the products which would allow them to maximize their leverage and embed leverage in places where you didn't really expect it and hide leverage in places where regulators weren't looking. And so I think it's a little bit too easy to just say, well, it's not the problem, it's not the fault of innovation, it's the fault of leverage, because I think the innovation um, enabled a huge amount of the leverage that we saw. Yeah, that, that, may I respond? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, that I'm point sorry. is well taken. Caitlin, can we just stop the tape here? So I, I just don't want to get lost. Who's speaking now? So this is uh, Tyler Cowan. Remember, he's the, he's the pro-financial innovation guy, and he comes in and he responds to Felix. So let's start it back at the beginning when he comes in. Yeah, that, that, may I respond? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That point is well taken, but I would stress a lot of these leveraging activities and innovations were a response to previous regulations, which were probably an error. So for us now to say, well, we've now got it figured out, we're going to make the regulations so tight that no one will ever be able to get around them again by anything off balance sheet, and we've got the problem solved, uh, I think maybe that's where we differ. I, I suspect that's an unrealistic hope and will actually do better being somewhat looser with regulation than a lot of people want, and having the market weed out some of the more unsound practices. I worry that if we over-regulate, we're just repeating the pattern, 
and encouraging people to do off-balance sheet activities to get around the regulations all the more. So I think at the heart of this debate over financial innovation, a lot of it comes down to your view of regulation and the ability of actual regulators. Tyler Cowen feels basically the same way as Felix and Mike do about the specific abuses which went on in the system. Like, he doesn't like it any more than any of them do, or any less. Um, But he just doesn't have faith that regulators, human fallible beings, are the ones that could actually stop it. Yeah, right. But but it's not just that, right? It's also, he also thinks regulation just as a structure in general is sort of a problem because people will just work around it. That just sort of makes the problem worse. Right. Regulation has all these unintended consequences because it just drives people to sort of skirt the regulation in unsafe ways. Another problem he has with regulation is that it will actually, and this is where we get to the we don't want to quash the financial innovation (laughs) sort of argument that you hear, but he is a very, he makes that argument. What he says, and he gives an example, Um, regulators would try to pass this regulation to make something that seems unsafe, to make it illegal. But then they might interfere with all these good things that could come out of this financial product that maybe the regulators don't see. And so he gives an example. He says, take, for example, the simple financial innovation of the common equity share, the stock, which is traded billions of times a day on the stock market. He says, imagine the stock and what happens in the stock market from an early regulator's point of view. It's quite common for the stock market to fall a lot and create systemic risk and cause the economy to contract, and they're very risky, and people lose their life savings. Mm -hmm. You can't say that equity shares are really fully safe, but we allow them, we're used to them, and I would rather we got more used to the financial innovations that are going to come, and they're going to come from overseas, if not here, and the U.S. needs to be a world financial capital, and uh, we need to have this learning process, I think, rather than shutting it down. I think... uh, Felix is very much overestimating what regulators can actually accomplish. Well, that I mean, I do feel like that's that is the that is the other side of this thing because, you know, you said a while ago, Mike, that like we why didn't the regulators stop this? Like they had every they they, they actually mm-hmm. were they could have you know people were community groups were going before the Federal Reserve for years saying we had a problem. Yes. With but on, on the other hand, who was in charge of the regulators? It was Phil Graham. You know, right. It was people who re- believed with religious fervor that any and all regulation was always a bad thing. But I guess that's what I'm saying is that like – can we – so we pass a rule saying Phil Graham should never – you know, and people <laughs> like him should never – how do you say, OK, so there was the wrong guy in charge of the regulators maybe? I mean clearly he, he's of a different opinion. But like how do you ever – how do you guarantee putting it all in the hands of the regulators – you you also need to then hope that there will never be another Phil Graham or somebody like him who doesn't believe in regulation. But it's you not even need, need to hope that also that regulators are really smart and are actually on top of they can actually see something that a lot of people didn't see even even inside it. Right, Tyler? Am I? It's not about Phil Graham. You have to look at the actual resources of regulators, their expertise, real time data, ability to understand particulars of off balance sheet activities. Uh, You could have had Robert Kuttner in there instead of Phil Graham. And uh, the regulators can only do so much. So we really need to look for decentralized solutions and have the shareholders put in place better incentive schemes. So we have to be a little bit careful. I, whoa, whoa, whoa. I am dubious about Wait, wait. Sure. Can we stop again? So, so who's that now? <laughs> right. So this is uh, Mike Consul again. He's the, he's okay. the financial engineer, and he's sort of our moderator guy. And, right. and he, he comes in to respond to Tyler's point. So we have to be a little bit careful. I, I am dubious about how much shareholders would have 
are able to root out a lot of these problems, in part because they are so profitable in the short run. And shareholders are often now a short-run vehicle, sometimes on the order of milliseconds. So it's not necessarily clear to me that their incentives are necessarily going to align up. In other words, if, um, I, if, I, if, I, if I day traded a stock for half a second, I'm a shareholder. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. And if you hold it for one week and, you know, we, we roll the roulette wheel and, you know, the green star didn't show up, that's a great week for us. And then we're done. So that right. kind of – that worries me a little bit. A lot of people talk about dumb regulation as opposed to smart regulation. Um, we don't necessarily need smart regulators, and we certainly don't need regulators who think they are smarter than the people that they are regulating because that will almost certainly never happen. But having regulators who are dumb and kind of know it and having rules that are kind of dumb rules, not dumb rules, but rules that are just simple rules that we follow, I think might be a better way to go than trying to be as clever with every inefficiency we find. So that would argue more for sort of like simple rules about leverage and 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 not so and not trying to sort of like look at every single financial innovation that comes along and say this one passes this one doesn't I'm going to look at the far reaching effects of this one and if this one gets overused I mean it seems like that would argue more in favor of less of allowing financial innovation and having a few basic rules in place. Not really, because you need to still look at the financial innovations to see whether basically they're just regulatory arbitrage and ways of getting around that rule and hiding the leverage in places where the regulators mm-hmm. aren't But how, how, do you, how do you then, that seems like you're, that doesn't sound like dumb regulation to me and that doesn't sound like no, a dumb but this regulator. Is, no, but this is, this is what Mike's talking about when he's talking about smart regulators who know that they're dumb. Uh-huh. That you, what you want is smart regulators imposing dumb rules and smart regulators basically saying I'm smart and I don't understand what purpose this product serves or how it works or why you're trying to introduce it and it seems to me that there's something which I don't understand going on here and if I don't understand it no you can't do it because the lesson of the great financial crisis of 2007 to 8 was that the products which regulators didn't understand and the products which bank managers didn't understand were the ones which wound up blowing up the financial system. So, so Alex, one of the things you hear a lot from people on the pro-financial innovation side of this debate is that, you know, financial innovation can solve some of the problems that we're facing. We just need to harness financial innovation and that will help us, you know, and it's not always up to government to fix things. The markets can do it. We just need to let them. Right. And Mike Konzel had a great post on his blog sort of addressing this issue. Uh, this was a couple of weeks ago now. And he, he, he posts these two quotes from this guy, Lou Ranieri. Now, Lou Ranieri is the inventor of the mortgage-backed security. So he is a financial innovator. He is the sort of the, the alpha dog financial innovator. Um, and he um, and so uh, Mike Konzel posts these two quotes from Louis Ranieri. One is in 2007. He's talking at a conference and he says, mortgage-backed securities – they are a huge problem. The subprime mortgage crisis is coming, and we cannot renegotiate the mortgages with the lenders. So there's going to be huge foreclosures. It's a big problem. Nah. <laughs> then in 2008, he says, the problem is here, and we have to start renegotiating these mortgages with the lenders. Um, and But we don't need help from the government because we, industry, can innovate our way out of this problem. We can find an innovative way to renegotiate all these mortgages with all these lenders, which is hard because they're all tied up in these mortgage pools and all that sort of stuff. But he said, we can figure it out. Then Mike has this 
chart from 2009, which shows that the level of foreclosures has continued to climb steadily and that nothing has changed. And he writes on his blog, he says, the one thing we needed them to innovate, the one thing, and they couldn't pull it off. Okay, so to this, Tyler Cowen, the the guy who's pro-financial innovation, he says, no, man, you can't look at it that way. The benefits of financial innovation, they are all around us. If we look at financial innovation as a whole, the most visible benefits would come from something like venture capital, where the United States has the most developed market in the world, and there's plenty of devices you use all the time that have been essentially founded by venture capital. Now, you might think there's some way to sit down and very easily separate out the good from the bad financial innovations. But if you look at innovation in any other area, other business practices, the history of science, the history of economics for that matter, in the short run, people or regulators for that matter are notoriously bad at being able to pick out, here are the innovations that don't matter, let's get rid of them, we're never going to need them or what comes from them in the future. And my worry is that we're starting to think that we can play that game and win at it, But the very history of economic science shows ideas coming along early. It doesn't seem they're very useful. They develop into something very important. And that's what we see also with financial innovation. So I agree we need good regulation. We need transparency. We need some simple rules against excess leverage. And we need to make sure that is not countermanded on the off-balance sheet side. But I would want to do as little as possible to stop the flow of new products, given those constraints. Tyler, I don't think it's particularly reasonable to call venture capital a financial innovation. Venture capital isn't a financial innovation at all. It's just equity finance. It's been around for centuries. It's like people investing in companies. There's innovative about that. The particular ways the U.S. markets work and mobilize much more capital and better information and better chances for startups, it's a whole set of interlocking institutions which are themselves innovations. Other countries don't have anything comparable. But I, I think you're right. I think there's a there's the... The, uh, the civil institutions surrounding how we, you know, um, set up limited liability companies and how easy it is to do that and how easy it is to raise money for those companies, especially in California, that is um, something at which the U.S. excels. And if you want to expand the definition of financial innovation to include how easy is it to set up a dot-com in Palo Alto, then maybe I might start agreeing with you that there are um, you know, more financial, good financial innovations than I might think. But I'm trying to I have a slightly narrower view of what we're talking about here, and I'm thinking about within the financial sector specifically. But if you want benefits from financial innovation, even in the narrower sense, I would say if you have enjoyed the renaissance of New York City since the 1970s, you've benefited greatly from financial innovation. And it's wrong to think that all those gains are being coughed back up and New York will now fall apart again. In general, if you look at the longer-run history of financial innovation, does it bring you superior allocation of capital? Basically, the answer is yes. And you don't ever see it in a visible way. It's why Adam Smith called it the invisible hand. But it's very real, and we experience the benefits of that uh, every day, every hour of our lives. But but Tyler, how how can you how can you really say that you know empirically? Adam Smith's you know invisible hand was was invented what two hundred years ago something like that. Um, we've had capitalism for a very long time, and yeah, we can agree that there's a certain invisible hand going on under capitalism and under the civil institutions of capitalism, but. You can agree that without 
for a minute agreeing that we've had any good financial innovations in the past 25 years or that we're likely to have any good financial innovations in the next 25 years. Well, it strikes me as an odd view to think that somehow the process of benefits has stopped. If you look at something like program trading, that has largely made markets more liquid. Credit cards and the growth and spread of credit cards in net terms I very much consider a benefit. Uh, 401k and related ideas and private sector versions of savings plans I very much consider to be benefits. And in general, just the ability to fund new ventures, which requires a lot of risk shifting and derivatives is a huge benefit. And they're all real. And even if they have not all been originated in the last 25 years, they've been refined and improved. And I want to count all those things. I'm mystified as to why you think it's all stopped. <laughs> I got a little snippy there. It did. It did. Venture it, capital is not financial innovation. <laughs> it is. <laughs> right. And, and it sort of it comes down to, I guess, sort of what you think financial innovation is. I, I don't think anybody's mind was changed during this debate, but, you know, it was interesting. Okay, so do we get to talk about the event? Because this conversation and related topics are all going to be talked about in a fascinating and exciting way on a big stage coming up soon. Yes. You are referring, of course, to a live event that will be happening in Washington, D.C. on August 27th. Um, And the live event will be hosted by me, Alex Bloomberg, and uh, my partner in crime, Adam Davidson. And it's basically, I'm I'm describing it as a, um, it's sort of a live debate about what to do to fix our financial system. And I'm thinking of it as sort of a cross between a congressional hearing and American Idol. <laughs> Isn't that what every congressional hearing is? Like? <laughs> I would, it's what every, it's the, it's the congressional hearing I always want it to be, <laughs> where like I, you can cut people off for grandstanding and you can crack a joke and ask a follow-up question. And, and so basically we're going to have a whole bunch of people talking about their solutions to, to fix the financial system so to make sure that what happened doesn't happen again. We're going to have a small panel of experts who are going to be weighing in and we're going to have a big crowd who's going to be able to sort of vote and call in their questions and um, and sort of raise objections and that sort of thing. So it should be fun. And I think there's going to be an open bar. If that sounds interesting to you, we have five seats, special seats for Planet Money listeners. And uh, if you're in the D.C. area, we're cheap, so we're not going to fly you there. But if you can make it, we would love to have you. And the number that you need to call is 202-408-1271. Tell us that you'd like to come. Extra points if you give us uh, drink ideas. I like the too big to fail. I think that's a Long Island iced tea. (laughs) Right. Um, And that number again, just because I like reading the number. So this is the first five callers. 202-408-1271. Some of you might be dialing right now. Um, get a chance to come to D.C., witness this um, hybrid event, the first ever hybrid between a congressional hearing and, and a reality game show, and uh, meet the whole Planet Money crew. You'll be there, Hannah. I will. Dave Castamon will be there. Caitlin Kenny, our producer, will be there. So it should be fun. Okay. And we will link to Felix Sam and Mike Konzel and Tyler Cowan's blog from our blog. It's all blogtastic over here. NPR.org slash money. They all have pretty great stuff online, which you should be sure to check out. And I think that's it for today. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening. A list of mania. Think less, but see it grow. Like a ride, like a ride, oh. Not easily offended. Not let it go. 